Bellevue family, welcome home. The View is a place of real and imperfect people coming together to worship the real and perfect God. We believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and our mission is to make His name known in the city of Memphis. No matter what you've been through, no matter where you've come from, you belong here. Here at The View, we are training up believers to be bold enough to use their voice for the gospel. Since Christ died for the sins of the world, since he gave up his life for us, we're called to give up our lives for him. In other words, it's not about me anymore. This semester, we're going to talk about love, a word that's thrown around so casually. But what does true, sacrificial love look like? How do we live in it, and how do we show it to others? We need to look to the one who sacrificed his life for us. This is real love. I want you to write this down. The title is, What to Do When You're Desperate. Very simple, very straightforward, but we're going to dive into a few things I think are very fascinating tonight. What to do when you're desperate. Now, we're still under the sermon series, Real Love, but as a part of the series, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to walk through Psalm 51 for the next few weeks. And we're going to look at a time, Trey, in, in King David's life uh, when King David was desperate. When King David was broken, when King David had done something that he thought he would never do, I probably thought he would never do, a sin that was plaguing him to his soul, to his core. And, and we find him in a place of brokenness, which is where a lot of us end up daily if we're honest. I want to ask you a question. I want you to be real. You don't have to raise your hand, but have you ever gotten to a place in your life? And I want you to really think here. Have you ever gotten to a place in your life where you really felt like you had hit rock bottom. I see heads nodding across the room. Here's the thing. Rock bottom. We picture bikini bottom. <laughs> we picture, what's that? Is it called rock bottom on SpongeBob, that episode? Rock bottom. We picture this, that rock bottom, and I'm saying this for a reason. We picture rock bottom like it's an external place. Rock bottom is not always external. A lot of times rock bottom is internal. A lot of times when we hit our lowest point, it's a point that nobody else could ever tell we were at our lowest. There's been a few times in my life, and I'm just going to be real with you guys tonight. This is real life. There's been a few times in my life when I was at rock bottom, but you could never tell by looking at my life. You could never tell by looking at me and how I acted in public. You would never know it. And what I believe is that there's a lot of college and young adults in this room who would agree that there have been times in their life where they have hit rock bottom but you can never even tell just looking at him. Why? Because we're so good at pulling it all together. Here's what you got to understand about King David, and I want you to get this, Reagan. King David, we know in Scripture, it tells us that King David was a man after God's own heart. When they went looking for the king of Israel, Fernando, they, God told them to not look at the outward appearance, for God looks at the inward. This was a man, you know this, you're familiar with King David. This was a man, Jackson, who loved the Lord. When he commits this sin that we're going to talk about tonight. It was at a time in his life when he knew the Lord and he loved the Lord. And yet he still fell. And I want to tell you something. There is nobody in this room who is so righteous that you can never fall. There is no one in this room who is safe from the attacks of the evil one. He came after Jesus and he came after King David. 
Now, King David, the very first mistake that he made is a mistake that college students, Harrison, fall into all the time. The very first mistake he made was staying back when he was supposed to be going out. See, a lot of times, and we're just talking tonight, I want to preach the tone of this text. God will want to send us out. We know that we are supposed to be sent out, but we will choose to stay back. When David was supposed to go to war, what did he do? He stayed back. Zach, and not only that, but Scripture literally tells us that he's walking around his balcony, relaxing, chilling. There's a lot of bad stuff that has come from just chilling. A lot of us love to chill. We can't wait to have that day. And I was listening to one of my old sermons. I talked about it. We can't wait to have that day when we're just able to chill and relax. But I got to tell you something. There's a whole lot of sin that comes out of just chilling. Is chilling bad? No, but it got King David. He's chilling. He was supposed to go to war. He stays back. He's out on his balcony. Here's how good Satan is. Satan knows he's chilling. And so since he's chilling, what Satan's going to do is use that to put something in front of him. And David walks out on his balcony. And he sees Bathsheba showering. Scripture tells us Bathsheba must have looked good. <laughs> Temptation always does. Temptation always looks good. You never walk in the kitchen and say, oh, those sugar cookies look nasty. <laughs> you look at the sugar cookies and they look good. And you eat one and then you think, ah, oh, one more won't do me no bad. And the next thing you know, you're upgrading pant sizes. <laughs> it always looks good. He looks at Bathsheba. And watch this. Desire forms, and then it becomes an action. See, that's how sin is. James tells us that. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to what? Sin. Then when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to what? Death. So he sees Bathsheba. Watch this, because you've all been in this situation. He sees Bathsheba. He wants Bathsheba. And what he does is he goes after Bathsheba, but he finds out that she's married to Uriah. And what does David do? Does he stop? No. Why? Because he's been letting this desire grow. He's been letting this lust grow. And so he chooses to commit adultery. Now watch this. We're going to talk about this more. What began as the eyes then became an action. Then that action became sin. You say, Daniel, this is heavy. I know. Life is heavy. We need to talk about it. He sees her. Act is committed. He commits adultery. Now, he pulls Uriah back. And he tries to get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba. This is how, now watch this. This is so crazy because King David, the man after God's own heart, what began with just the eyes now became an action of adultery. And now he's trying to manipulate the situation to get himself out of it. He wants Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba so that she'll get pregnant and they won't know that it's David's child since David had gotten her pregnant. Manipulating the situation. Uriah won't do it. Everybody else is off at war. He won't lay with his wife. And so now David's in this hard situation. What in the world is he going to do? You say, this sounds like a movie, doesn't it? You guys know this story. Like, this sounds like a modern-day film that you would go and watch. And no, it's literally the Word of God. This is literally what happens. And then King David has Uriah killed. He has Uriah killed. I want you to feel the weight of this. This is just Scripture. What started with the eyes led to murder. That was King David. Now, we have to be aware that Satan is trying to attack us with every single thing he has, and none of us are exempt from falling. None of us. Now, when we get to Psalm 51, Nathan has confronted David about his sin. Nathan has said, hey, God's displeased. You have broken God's 
commands. You have broken God's law. You've broken the Levitical law. You are in trouble. And see, a lot of times we find ourselves in that situation, but we're so hard-headed we don't want to acknowledge it. And what David does when he's in this moment, Zach, he is broken. He gets to a place where he realizes, Deco, how much God is grieved over his sin, and it breaks him. I want to tell you this. I wasn't going to tell you this until the end of my sermon, but it's putting on my heart to tell you now. You have three choices. This won't be on the screen. You have three options. You can, in your life, you can let God break you, and he will rebuild you. Or you will end up breaking yourself and trying to spend a lifetime rebuilding yourself. Or the world will break you, and you'll spend a lifetime searching the world to rebuild you. We all have that choice. God breaks us. He rebuilds us. Absolutely, we'll do. God breaks us. He always rebuilds us. That's what's amazing. When you let God bring you to a place of brokenness, he will be the one to always put you together. If you don't let God break you, you'll end up breaking yourself. And you'll spend your entire lifetime trying to rebuild yourself. I see a lot of you taking notes. Praise God for that. You will try to spend your entire lifetime rebuilding yourself. Or the world will break you, which it will. We all know how harsh the world is. Anybody who's been living, and everybody in here is probably over 18, I hope. (laughs) 18 and above. You all know how hard this life can be. You all come from families that are broken. We've all struggled with sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We know just how hard this life will beat us up. Listen, if you don't think life is harsh, keep living. If you don't think battles and trials are real, keep living, because I promise you battles and trials are on the way. They're on the way for me. They're on the way for you. But I got good news for you. No matter how harsh the battle feels, no matter how harsh the trial is, if you continue walking with the king, then his kingdom will come. (laughs) So what do you do when you're desperate? Let's talk about it. For real. What do you do when you reach the place David is at? What do you do when you have a sin that is latching a hold of you and you cannot shake it? It's like a leech. It is holding on to you with every single thing it has. What do you do when you have a thought in your brain and this thought continues to plague you time and time again? You would love for your mind to be mentally free. You see, you study James and you realize that when James talks about being double-minded, he literally says this. He says that you have a partition in your mind, a partition. In fact, this room, this room so big that it has a partition. It has a wall right there that I could go and I could pull that wall out. And what would happen is if I pulled that wall out, we would cut this room into two. Right now, if I went to that wall and pulled it, I could cut this room into two. And you could have a whole other meeting going on on this side and a whole other meeting going on on that side. You could have a whole other strategy happening here and a whole other strategy happening on that side. That's what James says your mind is like when you're not walking with Christ. He says there's a partition in your mind that your mind has been split, that there's this side that God's truth exists, and there's this side where this lies of Satan exists. And he says that that partition is so strong when the devil gets a hold of you that you can take in all of God's truth on Monday and then live like the world on Tuesday. (laughs) He says that partition is so strong that you can know all the right answers on the right side of your brain, but when it comes to applying them on the left side, you're going to have a hard time. He says that that partition will have you, watch this, living a double life. Living as a double-souled person. Living with two strategies, two missions, two goals all at the same time. Trying to worship and serve Jesus and then trying to worship and serve you all at the same time. 
double-minded. What do you do when you get so tired of being mentally drained and mentally beaten up that you're ready to have victory? What do you do? Because I believe that there's college students in this room tonight who are so mentally tired. I'm tired from walking up these steps. (laughs) I think there's college students in this room tonight that are mentally worn out. Physically worn out, spiritually worn out. You're beaten up. You know why? Because you're not walking with the king. (laughs) And to walk with the king, that's how the kingdom comes down. (laughs) Watch. You're walking with an earthly mindset, wondering why you're not experiencing heaven down here. When you set your mind on the things above, the things above come down. (laughs) When you set your mind on heaven, all of a sudden your actions begin to look like heaven. All of a sudden your thoughts begin to look like heaven. And your words look like heaven. And you're not a double-minded man or woman. Now watch this. Paul, in Romans 7, says that even he, as strong as he was as a Christian, struggled with something he couldn't break. Something he couldn't just get off of him. It was a leash. It plagued him, Mac. It just hung on to him, and he couldn't get rid of it. And he doesn't tell us what it was. I believe it's so that we can insert our struggle right there. (laughs) He says it in Romans chapter 7. This right here is an incredible passage. Would you look at this on the screen with me for just a moment? Romans 7 says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold. And if it's not on the screen, you can just listen to me. It's no big deal. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. Have you ever done something and not even understood why you did it? You ever been there? Huh? Yep. See, me going into the kitchen at 3 a.m., I don't know why I'm in there. But I'm searching the pantry and I'm looking for something. I don't know why I'm in here looking through the fridge, but I'm in here again. Shirts keep getting tighter. (laughs) Don't know why I'm in here, though. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I think we got a lot of believers in the room tonight who are tired of sin dwelling in them. Listen to me. If you know Jesus Christ, you have been saved from the penalty of sin. But as long as you have flesh, you can still be overpowered by the power of sin. The power of sin still exists in this world, even though you've been freed from the penalty of it. Corey. Isn't that amazing? He goes on to say, so for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good thing I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not, now, if I do what I do not want to, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. He repeats it again. I want you to understand Over the next few weeks in Psalm 51, I'm praying that we have some believers who are freed from some imaginary chains they have in their life. And I'm also praying that there's some people in here who don't know Jesus who will be freed from the actual chains that you're living under. I got news for you. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you are a slave to sin. You say, what would you learn at church tonight? Learn that I'm a slave. A slave to sin. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I was until I was 21. But if you know Jesus Christ, you have been freed from those chains of 
slavery. However, just like the Israelites wanted to go right back to Egypt when things got hard and throw the chains back on them, when following Jesus gets hard for us as believers, we want to run right back to the chains of slavery because we convince ourselves that that life was somehow better. Break those mental chains. Let the Spirit of God break those emotional chains. You've got to know who your master is. If you're claiming that Jesus Christ is your master, then he dictates your life. But if you are living as your own master, don't be surprised when sin dictates your life. Now, David comes to this moment. Look with me, if you will, at Psalm 51. He says, we're going to start with just verses 1 and 2. Don't you love that? Just verses 1 and 2 tonight. Two verses. Have mercy on me. If you're taking notes, I would love for you to circle or underline mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. I'll read it again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Think about it. He's thinking of that adultery. He's thinking of that manipulation. He's thinking and repenting of that those lies that he told and that murder he committed, he's thinking about all those things and he says, have mercy on me, O God. Verse 2 says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David realizes when he says, wash me, Kate, he realizes that he, because of sin, has gotten oh so dirty. You ever play outside when you were a kid? I know you did living in Bartley. You ever play outside? You had to play outside in Bartley. <laughs> Get muddy, get nasty, get filthy, get all in the dirt, all in the mud. And first thing you want to do when you get inside the house is have a shower. Why? Because it feels so good to cleanse your body of all that worldly stuff that you got on you when playing out in the yard. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of us who came in tonight feeling that way. You feel dirty. You feel shameful. You've got something on you that only Christ can wash away. That's the power of the cross tonight. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we approach your word in a form and a posture of humility. God, we humble ourselves before you and just thank you that you are willing to meet with us. God, I pray tonight that you would have every word. God, I pray and ask, please speak every word tonight. Free us from the chains that we have put ourselves in. God, I pray that you would save someone tonight and free them from the chains of slavery to sin, dear God. I pray that you would move in this place, that as Jasmine prayed a moment ago, that we would experience nothing but your presence, God. Give us an awe and a reverence for you, God. Make us aware of who you are in our lives tonight, God. If that's your prayer tonight, would you say amen? Amen. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The very first thing we've got to understand about being desperate is this. The desperate ask for mercy. What we see very clearly right here is that the desperate ask for mercy. Now, for anybody stuck in a sin tonight, I know that's nobody in here. We don't struggle with sin. We're perfect believers. We got it all together. I know nobody in here struggles with sin still. We're all basically in heaven. That's a lie. <laughs> if you're here tonight and you're looking around and you think everybody has it all together, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're looking at me thinking that dude's got it all together. You're wrong. I don't. 
Never will until I get to heaven. And then Jesus, through glorification, I have it all together. Not in this world. We are fallen, broken people. But there's something incredible right here. And I don't want you to miss this, Cam. This is so important. For anybody stuck in that sin and you feel like that sin is overwhelming, I want you to look at verse 1. If you're underlining, I want you to underline two things. There's very important, uh, something important here about what David is saying that we have got to latch a hold of, college students. First is, after he says, have mercy on me, O God, he then gives two accordings. These are very important. A lot of times we read over this so quickly. We study the Psalms and we read over them so quickly. He says, have mercy on me. Then he, under, then he says, according to your steadfast, I want you to underline that, according to your steadfast love. And then he says, according to your abundant, underline abundant, abundant mercy. He says, steadfast love. He says, abundant mercy. Now, why are those words important? Pastor Daniel, I'll tell you why. These words are very, very important because David is communicating to us, watch this, his perspective, his vantage point, his viewpoint. He's telling us what he needs by saying the word steadfast and abundant, Zach. What he's saying is he's saying he needs big love. He's saying, Ibuka, that he needs big mercy. He is not just praying for love and mercy. He's praying for steadfast and abundant mercy, big mercy, huge mercy. He has a high need for big mercy. He's coming to God. He's saying, God, I need abundant mercy. I don't just want mercy. I need abundant mercy. He's praying for big, big forgiveness, big, big mercy. And I'll tell you why, D-Will. He's praying for big mercy because he has a big view of his sin. He's asking for big love and big forgiveness because he realizes that he has big sin. Do you know why we pray so small for forgiveness and so small for mercy? It's because we have a small view of our sin. It's because we view our sin as so, so small that we don't think we need big mercy or big forgiveness. We think we just need God as somebody to help us drive when we get lost. We want God to come in when the GPS fails us. When the world fails us to tell us where to go, we want God to come in and help us get to wherever we were going. No! Without God, we are lost in our sin and we need big mercy. I want you to understand, we don't realize how much we need mercy when we don't realize how much our sin offends a holy God. We don't realize we need mercy because we don't realize how much our sin offends a holy God. God, that's why we don't pray for mercy. That's why you never hear us pray for mercy while we ask for mercy. Because we think that we've got it all together and God's the, the genie in a bottle who can grant us those side wishes, who can bring us that husband or wife one day, who can get us that job, that career. We want God to supply all the big needs we want, but we don't want to give him any of our daily interactions in our life. Offends a holy God. And I want to tell you something. There's a lot of people in the room who believe, and this is real. There's a lot of us as believers, and I'm like this all the time, Kayla. We believe God winks at our sin. We think when we mess up, when we choose to give in to that sin, that God is winking at our sin. I want you to understand something. If you think God winks at you when you sin, you will wink at him when you repent. If you think God's casual about that sin, you'll be very casual when you repent. 
And that's why, precious, repentance oftentimes is a concept more than it is a practical action. Because we think God's winking at us like, it's, oh, it's okay. What you're watching on your phone, what you're doing with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, it's okay. That thought that you have going on in your head, that thought of comparison and jealousy, it's okay. It's not that big. You can keep thinking that thought and be fine. We have a small view of that sin. And that's the reason why we have a small need for mercy in our lives. Now, I don't know what that is for you. I'm not going to sit here and act like I do. But you do. And what's amazing is you can make the choice tonight to say, hey, I'm done winking when I repent at God. I'm done holding on to this when I know it's ruining my life. You can make a decision tonight to truly give it over to God, and God will come through. He will enter your life, and he will free you from those chains. He will free you from that slavery. You no longer have to be a slave to that small sin that you're holding on to. I'm telling you, if you will realize how much God loves you, If you will realize how much he gave up Michelle for you on the cross and realize how much sin breaks your father in heaven's heart, when you realize it breaks his heart, it'll start to break yours. That's where David is. David, the man after God's own heart, the reason why his heart is so troubled, create a clean heart in me, O oh God, is because he's realized how much sin breaks the heart of God. And David said, if my heart is doing something that doesn't align with God's heart, then it's got to go because I'm going to do what God's heart says do. Now, that's the glory of God. God has no sin in him. God has no deceit. God has no jealousy. God has no sin or lying in him. He is truth. He doesn't just tell you truth. He is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He is kind. He is love. He is righteous. He is all these things. That's what's so amazing is that he has none of that sin in him like we do. He's perfect and he's sinless. Now, David also says, and this is so important, we're going word by word. Underline for me, we're going to make a cross-reference here. Underline blot out. Underline blot out. Or whatever your translation says. I'm not sure what your translation says. I'm reading from the ESV. Blot out my transgressions. When he says blot out, this is so cool because Peter in Acts uses this language too of blotting out. Peter in Acts 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 19 says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. We can keep this up there for just a moment. This was one of the first verses I ever memorized when I was walking with Jesus. One of the first ones, Jeremy. One of the first ones. I started understanding and memorizing that when I repent, God blots my sin out. Here's what's so fascinating about this. What he's saying by blotting out. He's saying you have, he has, we have a debt against God. We owe God. We have a debt to God. And when you repent, when you trust Jesus, whatever that debt is for you tonight, if you've trusted Jesus, your debt's been paid for all eternity. When you take your sin, your stronghold, your insecurity, your worry, your fear, when you take that to God and you repent, watch this, he blots it out. He blots it out. In other words, he wipes it away. This is the tone of the text. This is the tone of the night. He washes that debt away. He washes it away. I told a story today to my team of the first grade 
when I had to pull my clip, I was traumatized because I had never gotten in trouble in my life. And in the classroom in first grade at Bartlett Elementary, I don't know if you went to Bartlett Elementary. I did. I love Bartlett. There was a happy face that had all the potato chip clips. You know the potato chip clips? God bless you. You know the, the clips you used to keep your potato chips uh, closed? They had those clips, and it had our name on them. It said Daniel. I got to write my name on there, put a little smiley face, number 24, you know, all that stuff for Kobe. <laughs> like I'm the only guy who had a number on his clip. Like, okay, Daniel, number 24. <laughs> I have my clip on there, and there's three phases. Smiley face was green. Medium face was yellow. And frowny face was red. And I was talking, man. I was doing something. It was so innocent. I was, like, trying to help a kid with his homework. And Miss Naaman, I remember her name. <laughs> I'll never forget her name because she made me pull my clip. I still have nightmares about it. Miss Naaman looked at me. She said, hey, Daniel. I said, rose like this. Deer in the headlight. She looked at me. She said, are you talking in class? And I'm frozen. I'm like, no, I'm trying to lie, but I can't. I'm like, yes, I was such an innocent child. I was like, yes. You know, I'm, tears are already flowing down. And she says, this right here, she goes. And I knew what that meant. I had to take it. My punishment was served. I got up. I did the shame walk. My head was down. I kept looking back to see if she changed her mind. Nope. I got a little closer. I was like, nope. I'm like, they're holding the clip. And I'm like, nope. I grabbed the clip, I put it on the yellow face, never cried more in my life than that day. Went home, told my mom, you would have thought that I had just got caught with a gun at school. I was traumatized. I was shook. I came to her the next day. I said, Miss Naaman, I am so, so sorry. I want to make it up. I am so sorry. Please, please forgive me. Like, I did not mean to get in trouble. And she looks at me, she goes, I got you. I got you. You're good. She walks over to my clip. She goes, because you came and apologized and told me that, hey, you didn't mean it and you're going in a different direction now, taking your clip, putting it back on the smiley face. And I'm sitting there shook because this first grade teacher now had taken the debt that I had got myself in and said, hey, because of your brokenness over it, I will forgive you. Your clip is restored. Let me tell you something. There is nothing you have done in your life that God will not forgive you for. And he doesn't just forgive you for it. He will pick you back up from where you've fallen. There's nothing, nothing, nothing you've done that's too bad for God to forgive. There's nothing you've done that's too bad for you to repent of and for him to restore you of. When you come to him, you're not coming to some angry father who's going to beat you down. You're coming to God, your heavenly father, who loves you so much. And when you repent of it, he looks at you and he says, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, I will restore you. I will renew you. I will pitch you back up and put you on your feet. It doesn't matter the sin that you fell into yesterday. If you repent and turn from it and walk with me today, I will continue to renew you and restore you time and time again. Paul says, does that mean we should sin more so grace comes more? No. doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. It means that when you repent, you fall more in love with God because he forgives you. And the more you fall in love with somebody, the more you want to be like him. The more you fall in love with Jesus, the more you will start to want to be like him. He's washed away so much more than some potato chip clip. It's hard to say. That's a tongue twister. Some of you laughing at me. You try it. Potato chip clip. He'll wash away pornography. There it is. There it is. There it is. There's people in here tonight addicted and hooked on pornography, and you think there's no way out. There it is. 
Let me tell you something. I don't know who this word is for. This one's for you. God can free you from pornography. God will break you from the chains of lust and pornography tonight. If you repent and trust Jesus that he is enough, you will be free. The question is, do you believe that? Do you hate pornography enough to truly repent and say, I'm turning, to give it up, to lay it down at the cross? Are you sick of it enough? I'll ask it this way. Are you desperate enough to get rid of pornography? Man, I don't know who that's for. Haven't thought about that one time in my sermon prep process, but that's for somebody tonight. There is freedom in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. I don't know where you are tonight. Maybe for David, it's adultery, manipulation, betrayal that he's asking God to have mercy on. Maybe for you, it's the way you talk about people. Maybe there's some of us in the room, we all struggle with it, who use our mouth to curse God's creation and then come to church on Sunday and Monday and worship him with the same mouth. God can free you. I've got to keep going. God can free you from whatever it is. I don't know what it is for you. Tonight, there's somebody who's going to walk out of here free of pornography because of the power of Jesus Christ. I don't know where you are, but you will be free if you trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're going word by word through this. I want you to underline with me transgressions. Transgressions. Have mercy on me, O God. He recognizes God according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. What do you notice about transgressions if you're reading from the translation as I am? It's plural. There's an S at the end of transgressions. It's plural. David realizes that his sin has snowballed. And that's how sin is. Sin is just like a snowball. The longer it rolls, the more it builds. The longer you let it roll, the more it will build. It will grow. It will increase. What started for him with lust became murder. Students, do you really think that sin that you think is so small is not dangerous? Listen, I understand. Some of you may not come back here for the next couple of weeks. You may wait till we get through Psalm 51. This might be a little too harsh. Listen, I'm telling you, there is freedom in the name of Jesus Christ tonight. <laughs> and that that snowball of sin that you think is as big of a house can be, get, can be forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. James 1, verses 14 to 15, each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Look at desire, by his own desire. We want to blame everybody else in our life. We want to blame God. We want to blame Satan, and he has a lot of blame. But James tells us each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, maybe for some of you. It's that desire you think is so small. And then he goes on to say, we quoted this a moment ago, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to what? Sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth, say it with me, death. There's life in Jesus. There's death in sin. David is repenting of it all. I want you to understand before we move to the next point that when I was in the ninth grade, I listened to Grizzly's podcast 
I've told some of you will remember this. I've told you this story. Some of you. I listened to Grizzly, Grizzly's podcast every time I fell asleep. These podcasts were not even popular. These podcasts had like 13 listeners. But I called into one one time, and I felt like a celebrity. I called in. I asked a question. He recorded it, put me on iTunes. I tried to go back and find it later. I felt like the man had 13 listeners, some small podcast. I would listen to these with my earbuds in at night. And as I was laying down to go to sleep, one night in the ninth grade, I woke up in the middle of the night, and I realized my earbuds had come out. And I could literally feel in this moment and an, an terrifying feeling, a feeling that you do not ever want to feel. One of my ears was muted. I could not hear out of one of my ears in the middle of the night. I slept with a fan, and I couldn't hear the fan. And I realized as I looked at my earbuds that something was missing. <laughs> I realized looking at the earbuds that the, the, these were wired now. This was 10 years ago. The suction cup on the end of the earbud while I was sleeping, had come off of the earbud and lodged itself inside of my ear. You want to talk about pain? I woke up, ah, started freaking out. I woke up looking in the mirror trying to see if I could see it, Ibuka. I couldn't see it even in the slightest. It had lodged itself inside of my ear canal, and I could feel it shifting around every time I spoke. It was terrifying. I ran into my mom's room. It's like any ninth grader would. Ran in crying like a baby. <laughs> I said, Mom, Mom, I need your help. This is what she did. I'll never forget this. She took a paper clip, straightened it out, and hooked the end. <laughs> Such not nasty. And I had to lay there being traumatized while she used this. It's a true story. Used this paper clip. She's watching right now. Used this paper clip to go inside of my ear, hook the suction cup, and pull the suction cup out of my ear as a ninth grader. And when she pulled it out, that thing looked so nasty, y'all. I was like, oh, I don't want to ever look inside my ears. So I was like, I got to get some Q-tips. <laughs> like, this thing looked nasty. And here's what's amazing. I've never forgotten about this. Even though I was in the ninth grade, I've never forgotten about it. Because here's why. I was very well aware that that suction cup did not belong in my ear. And when I realized that there was something lodged there that didn't belong, I became desperate enough to get it out. A lot of us have something called sin, a stronghold, a thought that has lodged itself inside of us, and we know that it does not belong. The reason why it's still living there is because we're not desperate to get it out. See, the last thing I wanted to do in that moment at 3 a.m. was wake up, realize there was something there that didn't belong, and just say, oh, well, and live my whole life with a suction cup lodged into my ear like a psycho. They'd, I'd be dead. They'd cut my body open one day like, oh, this poor sucker lived an entire life with an earbud in his ear. <laughs> this poor sucker. No, the minute I realized it was there, I became desperate. And not just that, watch this. I could stare in the mirror all I wanted to, Nalina. I'm not going to get it out myself. I had to go and get help. Do you know what James 5.16 says? James 5.16 says, therefore, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. Guess what? There's some sin that gets lodged so deep into us that we will never overcome it until we run for help. I call James 5.16 the lifeguard verse because when you call out to somebody in your life who you love and you trust, they, form as a, they perform as a lifeguard. They come in and get you out of the deep. They save you from the trenches. You confess your sin. They pray for you. They encourage you and they push you to Jesus. See, some of us have something lodged inside of our mind or our heart that doesn't belong there. We're desperate to get it out, but the reason why it's still living there like that suction cup in my ear is because we haven't gone and told anybody. 
I can be desperate all I want in my room, but until I get my mom, it's staying there. You can be desperate all you want over those thoughts and those sins, but until you go to somebody you love and trust, not everybody, but somebody you love and trust, it will stay there. You're in a relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and you're struggling with sexual immorality. Until you go to someone that you trust, you will continue to stay in the snowball of sin. It will continue to build. But there's freedom in the name of Jesus Christ. I've got to keep moving. I pray that you don't forget that. I pray this week you remove the suction cup from your ear, that you will go to somebody you trust and you will confess it to them. Number two, the desperate are restored. Moving very quickly here. The desperate are restored. Now, not only point one, the desperate ask for mercy. But number two, one of the effects of that, one of the outcomes is that the desperate are restored. Now, I want to give you something very fascinating. I'm going to give it to you quickly. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 7. I want to make a cross-reference here that I think is very fascinating. John chapter 7. Now, we're looking at David, but as great as David was, clearly he wasn't that great because he fell into sin. The hero of any text from the Bible is Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen tonight? Amen? Any text we preach, the hero is still Jesus. Now, I want you to know something about John chapter 7. I'm going to stay in my notes so that I don't mess this up because I saw this very fascinating. In fact, I'm going to turn there myself. John chapter 7. It's a, a chapter in the book of John, obviously. He's like, Daniel, thanks. I didn't, couldn't put that one together. John chapter 7. And this is so fascinating because this is like a, a scene out of a movie, Paul, but if you read it quick, you'll miss it. We talked about this in my office. If you read it quick, you'll miss it. Now, in John chapter 7, look at chapter 1 and 2. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. It's a pretty good reason to avoid that place. Now, the Jews... Feast of Booths was at hand. You're taking notes, underline Jews, Feast of Booths. And I know I'm going to push some of you with this, but I want you to hang in there with me. I think this is so cool. Feast of Booths. I'm like, you're saying it wrong. Booths. Also, the Feast of Tabernacles. What is this? What is the Feast of Tabernacles? Why is this important? See, we read the Bible and we skim over it. I want you to understand something. The Feast of Tabernacles. This was a, and I think this will even be on the screen. This commemorated, here it is right here. It commemorated the 40-year period when Israel wandered in the desert. It's symbolic to that. But it was also an agricultural and seasonal celebration. Twofold here. It was a 40-year period when Israel wandered in the desert, but it was also an agricultural and seasonal celebration. Now, during this festival, here's what would happen. Watch this. I'm telling you, this is fascinating. It's cool. It's not some goofy illustration, but it's cool. During this festival, what they would do is they would pray for God to send rain down to water their crops. We live in America. We have access to all the water we can need, unless you don't live in Bartlett. Then the pipe's busted. And sorry, you should have lived in Bartlett. We have access to water. But you have to remember, uh, <coughs> we forget that the people in the day of the Bible were so dependent on God to the point that they were dependent on him to send water for their crops. They were dependent on God for rain. We all get bent out of shape when it rains, Tina. We all get bent out of shape. We're all mad trying to walk around campus when it rains. These people were dependent on God to water their crops. I'm telling you, you don't want to miss this. They were dependent on God to water their crops. We waste water while brushing our teeth. <laughs> we let the water run while we're brushing our teeth. And they were dependent on God to water their crops. That's insane. Now, the Israelites, we know that they lived on the edge of the desert and their crops would die because of lack of rainfall. Watch this. By the time of this festival, Joe, it would have been six months of no rain. Can you imagine? Think about that for a moment. I know we ain't talking about Kobe or something. Think about that. Six months 
of no rain when this festival came. <clears throat> the Jews were worried that their crops would die. Now, for hundreds of hundreds of years, they participated in this festival. And I know people are watching online, too. I want to go slow so they can catch this. People would participate in this festival, but they would miss the purpose of it. They'd participate in the Feast of Tabernacles, but they would miss the purpose of it year after year. And you know what? There's a lot of us who come to church and miss the purpose of it. There's a lot of us who are seated in a view seat tonight, but have missed the purpose of being here. Community's great, but it's not about community. Nate told us that at the kickoff. Community's great, but the reason of being here is to experience the presence and the power of Jesus Christ together. That's the reason why we're here. See, they missed the purpose of this festival. Jesus is going to show up to correct their purpose. Watch this. The feast lasted seven days in the Old Testament, lasted eight in Jesus' day. Here's what would happen. Every day a priest would leave the temple and walk towards the pool, and people would be worshiping all around him. The priest would lead the people, and this verse will be on the screen. We can go ahead and put it up there, Isaiah 12, verse 3. The priest would lead the people to the pool, and they would sing these words. Picture this in your head. Let this play out in your mind like a movie. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The priest would lead the people singing these words. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. They're singing about salvation. Here's what would happen at this festival. The priest would then fill up a golden pitcher with water. He'd fill up a golden pitcher with water. Six months, no rain. A golden pitcher with water. Trumpets would sound. In fact, they were silver trumpets. They would, they would sound out. And not only that, but palm branches would be waved. It was this huge festival. And this is where they would shout. If you've been in church, you've heard this. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. This is where they would shout Hosanna. They would shout Hosanna. Which means, you know what it means? Anybody knows what Hosanna means? It means save us. They're literally so dry, they're singing Hosanna, save us. And the priest would hold up the golden pitcher, and you're with me, I love this, you're with me right now, this is so cool. He would hold up the golden pitcher, symbolizing their need, where am I at? Symbolizing God's provision, God's know-how to provide water. They'd hold up that golden pitcher, symbolizing that God would send the rain they needed when they were so physically dry, Elijah. He'd hold it up. Now, here's where it gets crazy. Watch this, okay? On the last day of this feast, when, where, when Jesus is there in the New Testament, the priest holds up the golden pitcher. Picture this scene. He holds up the golden pitcher, six months no rain, the shouting and the trumpet stops. The trumpet stop, it gets silent, Delaney. Nobody's singing, and it's silence, and he's holding the golden pitcher up. As silent as this room is right now, more people than this. Silence. We hold it up. In this silence, at this feast, all eyes are on the priest. In this silence, while all eyes are on the priest, Jesus Christ stands up. Jesus Christ stands, and he proclaims these words. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. <laughs> can, can you imagine silence 
They're wanting God to bring rain. Six months, no rain. All eyes are on the priest. And then someone stands up and says, if anyone's thirsty, come to me. Do you know how mind-blowing of a moment that must have been? Do you realize the weight of that? Let me try to say something like that. Like, we've been in here waiting for six months of rain, and I stand up, hey, if you're thirsty, come to me. I got a jug right here, giving out water bottles. In the silence, he stands up, and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I want to tell you something, and I want you not to miss this. Jesus is not interrupting the festival. He is interpreting the festival. (laughs) I love it. This is my favorite part of the sermon. He's not interrupting it. He's interpreting it. Here's what Jesus is telling them. It's literally so cool. He's telling them. He's saying, guys, you've been coming to this feast for hundreds and hundreds of years. You've been coming here begging for God to send rain because you're physically dry. And he said, what you don't realize is that the purpose of this feast, the purpose of this celebration is not that you are physically dry. It's not that you are physically thirsty. It's not that I've got a whole bunch of water bottles here. He says the purpose of this feast is that you are spiritually dry. (laughs) You have no living water on the inside of your body. Your soul is dry. You're waiting for physical rain. You don't realize you need spiritual rain. You're wanting water. You don't realize you need living water. Jesus is saying, I don't have to give you a Dasani bottle of water because I will give you everlasting life. I will give you eternal life. You've been coming to this festival for hundreds of years wanting rain to pour, not realizing your soul is dying and a lot of you are going to hell. And here I stand. I don't have a water bottle on me, but I have everlasting eternal life. If you're thirsty, come to me. If you need everlasting life, come to me. Don't look any further. The Messiah is here. If you need living water, I will provide for you and you will never run out. That's insane. Why do we get so excited about worldly things, but we don't get excited about the Bible? Why? That's mind-blowing. Let me tell you this. Some of you are sitting here tonight wanting God to provide for you physically. But you aren't looking to him at all spiritually, and that's why you're dry. Your soul is dry because you're pursuing the world. You want rain, not even a bad thing, and you're neglecting your time with God. He's not filling you with his spirit. He's not filling you with living water, and that's why you're walking around feeling empty, feeling dry, feeling like SpongeBob when he didn't have any water. You look like SpongeBob when he was dying in Sandy's crib or wherever it was. You're walking around, I need a wife, I need a husband. Jesus is saying, no, you need me. You need me. Your, praise God, your soul needs me. If you're thirsty, come to Jesus. If you're hurt, Come to Jesus. If you're lonely, come to Jesus. If you got an addiction, come to Jesus. If you're worried, come to Jesus. If you're fearful, come to Jesus. If you need life and you're tired of living in sin and death, come to Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the looks on their faces at that feast? I bet they were shocked. I bet they didn't know what to say. 
Because Jesus just told them what their soul needed. I almost broke my iPad. I'm trying to tell you about the Feast of Tabernacles on a Monday night in a college ministry. Now, what did I forget pacing around? This. Desperation for Christ brings restoration from Christ. Praise the living God. Desperation for Christ brings restoration from Christ. What I love about Psalm 51, David says it. <clears throat> he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. No matter how many physical showers you take, that won't cleanse you from your sin. No matter how much it rains, it won't cleanse you from your sin. But when you come to Jesus, he will clean you of your sin. And the final thing, this will be very brief tonight. Not only does the desperate ask for mercy, not only does the desperate, um, geez, I'm going to go back, are restored, but number three, the desperate will see Christ. Praise God. Number three, the desperate will see Christ. David says it. He says, cleanse me. Cleanse me. Have mercy on me. <clears throat> I want to tell you before this point so you can be thinking about it. If you're here tonight, I know what we've talked about is so heavy. If you're here tonight and you want to talk to somebody, you want to pray with somebody, just prayer. In a moment when I give the invitation, we're going to have some of our prayer team members standing by the door. I want you to be thinking about this. If God lays this on your heart to go pray with somebody, don't say no to God. You will never regret saying yes to God. Amen. If, it, if the Lord puts it on your heart to pray with somebody over here, I want you to make your way to the door when I say bow your heads and go pray with somebody because that might be you tonight. I want to turn your minds to one final thing. You don't have to turn there. But in studying Psalm 51 of David, I, I saw it very fitting to reference this passage. It's of Luke chapter 18, verse 35 to 43. And this will be on the screen. Look with me. As Jesus knew, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Let's pause right here. Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Can you imagine? In this moment, hearing about the one who's been doing miracles, who's been healing people, who's been loving people, and you hear he's in earshot close to you, some of us would get more excited about LeBron James being close than we would about the Messiah being close. Some of us would get more excited, and I don't know if this applies for ladies. This might be bad. About the, I'm not even going to go there. I was going to say something about The Bachelor, but I don't know what I'm talking about. So I'm not even going to do that. not even going to go there. Don't need to. Good job, Daniel. Filter. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. I love verse 38. Look at this on the screen. He cried out, Jesus, son of David, say this with me, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, read it again, have mercy on me. Thank you. He cries out, have mercy on me. And I love that he uses the title son of David recognizing that this is the Redeemer of Israel. This is the Messiah to come. 
have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. You ever got serious about prayer, serious about your faith, serious about Jesus? You start talking about it and other people say, hey, be quiet. Hush. Anybody at your workplace tired of hearing about Jesus? Good. Good. Why should you and I be worried about getting in somebody's way if we believe Jesus is the one who provides living water? If you were at that feast and realized that Jesus was the Messiah and then went back to your workplace and said, eh, I'm not going to uh, get in this person's way by telling them about Jesus. What? Really? We're scared to get in people's way. If they're on their way to hell, let's get in their way. Let's get in their way. Let's stop them from going down that path. So they can repent, come to know Jesus, and believe. And then the last things from this text, I love it. Jesus stopped because he kept crying out all the more. He cries out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. He gets louder. He don't care who told him to shut up. Son of David, have mercy on me. When some of you get discouraged in prayer, what you need to do, Jake, is shout louder. <laughs> Next time you feel like quitting prayer and giving up, start shouting louder. Louder than the voices in your head telling you to quit. Pray louder. Pray with more faith. He says, son of David, have mercy on me. And then picture this moment. Jesus stops. The blind man would have heard their footsteps. This crowd passing by. And he calls out a second time. And this is what he hears. The footsteps stop. Can you imagine the blind man like, what's happening? They pick him up. They bring him to the son of David. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? College student, what do you want Jesus Christ to do for you? Purchase you a new Lamborghini? <laughs> Be crazy if you walked out in the parking lot and there it was. Pastor said, have faith. See you guys. <laughs> Do you want Jesus to free you from those chains? To give you hope? To give you life? What do you want? For him to save you tonight? For him to save you as he saved me five years ago at a public park, face down on the ground in tears? To save you? What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, one of the most powerful verses in this chapter, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. I want you to understand that this blind man, when he opened his eyes for the first time, the very first thing he was looking at was the face of a Middle Eastern Jewish rabbi named Jesus Christ. <laughs> Can you imagine that moment? And for some of you, you are broken, you are desperate, you are sick of the way you're living. You're sick of this sin you're trapped into. You're sick of being in chains and you want to see Jesus when you're desperate enough to call out on him like that. Have mercy on me. You will see him. You will see him. And you can see him tonight. If you're in the room, and you don't know Jesus Christ, what a better night to give your life to Jesus Christ. For those of you who know Jesus, is he not good? Amen. 
If you want to give your life to Jesus Christ tonight, come to the doors and talk to a prayer team member. Come talk to us. When we bow our heads, text Jesus to 901-833-7525. We'll call, we'll call you. We'll call you. And you can have everlasting life. You can know what it's like to experience living in love.